welcome to Note Doctors. My name is Paul. My name is Jen. My name is Ben. And we are your hosts. We are all university music theory instructors who are passionate about music theory and music theory instruction. In this podcast, we will be talking about all things theory with some of the best music theory teachers in the country. If you want to know more about music theory and the most effective and innovative ways to teach it, this is the podcast for you. Welcome to season two of Note Doctors. Thank you so much for joining us for this new season of music theory and music theory pedagogy nerding out. We have some great (laughs) guests lined up uh, for you and we're really excited about the things that they're going to be sharing uh, with us and with all of you. Uh, First, before we get into our first guest, we do want to mention that you can find us on the internet. We're out there beyond just the podcast. We're on Facebook facebook.com slash note doctors podcast we're also on instagram right is that right and that is true can, yes <laughs> and you can dm us right that's right is that how i say that yes uh, at note doctors podcast <laughs> um, i gotta get the lingo correct if you have any comments because we love hearing from our listeners in fact we had a comment over the summer from luzanne who teaches and is a graduate student in south Africa. So thank you, Luzanne, uh, for for commenting and, and writing to us. She says that she enjoys the podcast so much that she's listening to each of the episodes more than once. That's dedication right there. <laughs> I, I am not exaggerating when I say that email made my year. It was so, <laughs> so encouraging. I loved it. We love you. We man. do. <laughs> yes. So thank you so much, Luzanne. And, and if you have any comments, or ideas for future topics or guests that you'd like us to have on the show, please reach out to us. You can uh, leave us. Um, uh, uh, you can DM on us. iTunes. You can DM us on Instagram. Um, only good reviews on iTunes, please. Mm-hmm. We ask. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so yeah. So as we kick off season two, we have a very exciting first guest. I think, don't we? Is that right, Jen? That is right. So our guest today is Corey Arnold. Corey Arnold is a professional elephant cartoonist and occasional music theorist who's been publishing song analyses and other videos on music theory for six years on their YouTube channel, 12 Tone. They also co-host the podcast Ghost Notes, where they do deep dives on various musical questions. And we had an absolutely fun and delightful conversation with Corey. So stay tuned. In my work, I didn't want to show my face, and so I had to figure out other ways to make it feel like it was just like a friend explaining a thing to you, and that that doodling style is a way to sort of feel like you're, you know, to me it immediately evokes like sitting in the back of a class you're not paying that much attention to and just messing around. And I think most people have at some point in their life not paid attention in class, and so that that I think gives it and again it sort of removes some of the for lack of a better word stuffiness of it too it makes it feel like it's sort of like an unspoken like look i get it like this may not seem like the most exciting thing but trust me i think it's really cool and you should listen to me as opposed to like trying to be like really like oh you should care about this thing it just has this subtlety to it that that shows rather than tells that like I acknowledge that maybe you might not think you care, but you should care. So today, our very special guest is none other than Corey Arnold. You might be wondering, 
who is Corey Arnold? Well, you might know Corey Arnold better as 12-Tone, the YouTuber, and we are so thrilled to have you on uh, our podcast and to talk with you about your work and all the things that go into that. Uh, before, though, we would like to just kind of get a little background information. Um, I actually, when I reached out to you, just, I think, wrote like, Dear Mr. 12-Tone or something <laughs> like that. I wasn't even that sure who right. you were. <laughs> and so tell us a little bit about, you know, how you got into music theory, a little bit about your musical background. I'm guessing that it's just a love affair of Arnold Schoenberg and second Viennese composition, you know? Um, uh, but maybe <laughs> maybe that's wrong. <laughs> no, um <laughs> So I, I sort of got into music in high school, and my initial plan was to be a metal singer. Like, that was mm. that was my goal. And I went to college to be a metal singer and found out pretty quickly that being a professional musician is actually very hard. So <laughs> I decided to, like, sort of look into teaching as an option, and so I'd switched to go get a full bachelor's instead of the associates I'd been getting. And... That was, I think, sort of, I'd always liked theory, mainly because it was a class I was good at. Like, I found that I was good at thinking about structures and systems in the way that my, like, theory classes wanted me to. And so, like, I, but it was it was in sort of late into, like, bachelor theory that, like, I really started to recognize how much I actually liked it as an idea. I think the, the thing that I always cite as sort of, the idea that turned me on to music theory as a thing I might want to do is diminished seventh modulations, which sounds very specific and niche, but it's, <laughs> I guess it was just the way I've described it in the past in some contexts is like, I, I think of a lot of these things as almost like conceptual structure, uh, conce conceptual sculpture rather. And diminished seventh modulations were the first time I'd really seen and understood the beauty of like a completed piece you know, if that makes yeah. any sense outside of my head, I don't know if it does, but that was sort of the thing where I was like, I like I still remember the lesson where they were just my teacher was walking through this thing, where it's like, oh, you can go to these four keys, and it's like, oh, that's cool, and then it's like, oh, but if you treat it as like uh, seven diminished seven of five, then you can go to these other four keys, and it's so quickly and going, and I was mm -hmm. like, oh, but if it's of four, then that's and that's whoa, that's all twelve keys, yeah. and <laughs> like, and that sort of was. I, I don't know that that was the moment that I was like, oh, I'm definitely going to do this for the rest of my life. But that was sort of the moment that that started to grow as a possibility. It was like, oh, I, this is something I want to do. This is something that's honestly more interesting to me and mm -hmm. than actually being a gigging, performing musician professionally. Mm -hmm. That's so interesting you talk about it being sculptural because I like to teach those modulations with a clock face. And so you draw yeah. your pitches for your fully diminished seven starting on C and you realize it's symmetrical. And then, yeah, you oh, you little diamond. And yeah, it's a little diamond. And then you can just spin the diamond around and you can modulate yeah. pretty much anywhere. So you go from fully diminished seventh modulations to creating a YouTube channel about theory. Talk yeah. about those steps. Uh, so the sort of... In college, I started watching some of the early sort of YouTube education channels. Like, this is something that I've done some research on, and it sort of, like, traces back to around 2008-ish is when these started popping up, as far as I could find. Uh, and 
around like 2010 or whatever, I started really getting into those. And I was talking with a friend of mine who'd introduced me to uh, the channel number file. I don't know if you're familiar. They do math videos and were like by made by Brady Heron, who was like one of the earliest people in like the YouTube education scene. Uh, and a friend of mine had shown me his math channel and I was like really into it. And I was talking to my friend and uh, he was actually like, oh, I, I was considering starting a YouTube channel, but I don't know what it would be about. And I was just sort of like offhanded casually, like, you know, I, I, I've i been doing pretty well in my theory classes. I could probably do something about that if I wanted to. And then, but at the time, my goal was to still to be a teacher and like in person doing classes. And I was sort of positioning, trying to angle myself to get a job at the school I'd been going to once I graduated. And then that sort of fell through. That didn't happen. And so I found myself with a bunch of free time and I had completely failed to make a backup plan. So I was like, <laughs> okay, well, I tried to get a couple bands going, but like, it was really hard to organize people to do something like that. And I'm not good at organizing people. So I was just like, I had this other idea too, and I had plenty of time to do it. So I just sort of started doing, I reached out to some friends to try and put it together and started making stuff about mostly like the like undergrad theory stuff that I already knew. A lot of the other stuff I did came later, but, mm -hmm. but yeah. So probably when you went through your undergrad theory instruction, maybe your teacher didn't use that many pop music examples, but a lot of your videos showcase lots of different styles of popular music. When did yeah. you get into analyzing popular music and looking at it in this unique way? So that came pretty naturally once the idea of analyzing music at all started like occurring mm -hmm. in the channel because like I'm not a huge fan of a lot of the canon like a, the, mm -hmm. no no disrespect to any of that or to anyone who likes listening to Beethoven Bach Mozart like I that's fine but it's not really the music that I grew up with it's not the music that I love it's not the music that moves me and so it was actually like, I think like a year and a half into the channel, maybe two years, uh, Leonard Cohen passed away. Mm. And uh, my dad reached out and was like, hey, it might be interesting to make a video about Hallelujah, you know, his, his biggest song, because yep. it literally describes its chord progression in the first verse. Mm -hmm. And so it was like, okay, well, but what is like a minor fall? What is a major lift? And I had to be like, okay, those aren't, you know, technical terms. But, you know, you still have that, like, that clear explanation of what the music is doing while it's doing it that is really interesting. And so we did a video about that. And at the time, uh, my sibling was proofreading all my scripts and I ran this by them and they were like, hey, this is probably the most interesting thing you've ever written to me because it grounds a lot of these ideas and makes it more accessible because I understand the song. I can take this thing you're talking about and apply it to sounds that I can relate to, as opposed to, you know, if I'm just talking about like the Tonettes or whatever, like I love talking about the Tonettes, but <laughs> most people don't have a good intuitive understanding of like neo-Riemannian spaces. Right. So <laughs> weirdly, but shocker, <laughs> but it was just a way to take at least some of these ideas, at least the ones that applied to works that I wanted to talk about and make them more relatable and once I started doing that, it wasn't long before the channel started getting a lot more attention than it had been previously. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it's amazing when you start connecting the t- concepts to real music that yeah. people live with and the connections that actually happen, right? Yeah. Yeah, and I, it's one of those things where like, I, I'm a little ambivalent about it because, again, I do really like thinking about these things in their really abstract senses as well. Like, you know, the first couple things I mentioned in this episode were like the diminished seventh modulation and the tonnettes <laughs> and... Neither of those are that relevant to most of the music that I listen to. I, the, there are some songs I listen to where I could make neo-Riemannian arguments, but like, as, as a whole, it's not the most relevant stuff, but it is, I think, really conceptually beautiful in ways that I think are worth appreciating and worth acknowledging outside of their application. But also, it is really useful to like take a song and be like, here, this is a song, and let's see... It's not so much that I'm grabbing a song that I think is a particularly good example of a concept and then trying to use that song to demonstrate that most of the time. It's more taking a song that I like and being like, okay, so what's happening? You know? Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that. Yeah, and I, I noticed even some of the titles of your videos like start with a why question, which is yeah. kind of like, I like to frame classes like that. Like, I'll just start this semester, a couple of classes I've already done with just a tune, and I'll say, pick a moment. And why does it sound that way? And I think you've kind of framed your videos like that, yeah. like why those four chords are everywhere, for example, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like starting it with that question, people are like, oh, well, why, you know, why is it? Like, why does it sound that way? And like, why those four chords? Exactly. Like those kind of questions yeah. are are really enticing, I think, versus just saying like, hey, so who wants to learn about the tonettes, you know? <laughs> oh, it's like, oh, no clicks. But like, why those four yeah. chords? 70,000 views, you know? It's, it's kind of interesting, you know? Yeah, there's this, like one of the, biggest pieces of advice like it, it, in terms of like title writing for videos that I always give is like if you can the best title is a question that everyone that someone never thought to ask right mm. like something where they go like oh yeah what is that why is that yeah. what's going on yep, yep. Mm-hmm. but yeah, I love it, that until you channel. actually put the idea in front of them they don't see it and obviously like some things work better than others in that approach mm. and so not all of my videos do that but like if I can if I can come like one of my like favorite titles like I've ever done, which is on a video that like I'm not super proud of anymore. Like it's not not that it was a bad video. It was just like, you know, it, it was fairly early on. And so like I could do much better today, but it was just like, why don't all instruments sound the same? And mm-hmm. like, you know, it's a yeah. great sort of way to introduce like concepts of like the harmonic series and timbre and stuff like that. Yep. Yep. And, you know, again, like the video itself, pretty basic in terms of information. It's not like mm. I would recommend everyone go watch that right now. I've done much better <laughs> videos about timbre and harmonic series and stuff. But, you know, it, it, it is that that sort of thing where you hear it and go like, wait, why not? Right. Like, why wouldn't? Right. Why would that be? <laughs> yeah. That is great. And so talk us a little bit about the process of going through making a video. So where do you come up with the ideas? You know, how long is the process of you know, script writing, yeah. videoing it, you know, drawing, editing, kind of, um, and kind of what kind of technology yeah. do you use for, I, I'm sure some people would be curious about kind of the behind the scenes workings. <laughs> yeah, so the, the process actually kind of just changed. I made some adjustments to my schedule recently to give myself more time for research and script writing and stuff. But Broadly, to start at the beginning of that, like, where do ideas come from? It's a mix of things. When I do a song analysis, what I'll do is I run a poll on my Patreon page. And so every month, people will vote. I'll give them, like, four songs and carry, like, carry songs that do sort of well but don't win through to the next one just so I don't have to come up with fewer songs. But, like, I'll present 
four options and people will vote and then the song analysis is whichever one of those wins and mm-hmm. i'm mostly like i i don't even i used to sort of look at look up like chord progressions or whatever look up a little bit of transcription just to make sure there was something to say but these days i'm just like confident that if i love a song enough to put it on that list mm-hmm. i'll find something mm-hmm. it's just it's not there's always something and i just have to know how to look for it and so i've i've really at this point just pick songs and don't even start like examining them really until I know which one won. But like the other things I do that are like the non-song analysis stuff, that varies. Some of that is from, you know, keeping up on literature. I spend a lot of time like whenever like a new MTO comes out. I I mostly use MTO because it's free. I do look at like Spectrum and like uh, music cognition and whatever as well, but it's just so much easier when it's MTO because mm-hmm. I I can just look at the whole thing without <laughs> you know, having to figure out a way to get access, but, uh, why we charge people for access to that. I don't, I don't really know why. It's it's weird. I don't know. It's just because SMT publishes like spectrum and MTO. It just, I don't know. Right. But Mm -hmm. I don't know that that's not super, you know, my point, (laughs) but you know, (laughs) keeping up on literature, finding Mm -hmm. things that I want to read, like the video I did, uh, last week as of this recording, was basically it was a video about choruses because I, I assume this will mm-hmm. take a while to come out so people know what I'm talking about. But that was basically me reading the an article and then a, like most of a dissertation by a guy called Trevor DeClerc, uh mm-hmm. about you know song form and sort of spinning off from that and like again a lot of that does come from just me looking at articles, seeing what they reference, going and reading that and trying to read mm-hmm. as much as I can. Uh, the other main source of topics is getting mad about things on Twitter. Um, <laughs> like, it's a great source. It's a lot, a lot of <laughs> a lot of my videos come from, or not not a lot, but but a good portion of my videos come from me just like seeing something either because like music Twitter as a whole got mad about it, or mm. because like I saw like like some an article that was just like. I don't know, like, for instance, the Ben Shapiro thing. I'm sure I don't oh, yeah. have to provide yes. too much additional mm-hmm. context for that. But Well, we're having his father on next time because he did go to music school <laughs> and did, studied yeah. music theory. <laughs> oh, God, my. A whole, a whole, like, I, God, I had a whole meltdown on Twitter about that, <laughs> that specific, my music theory father, uh-huh. father who went to music school. I spent, right. like, days just, like freaking out about this. like adam neely and i like tried our hardest to figure out where he went to music school like if he had ever actually worked as a music theorist it was it, it was a lot but but that that's often like a little less glibly than just getting mad at things on twitter like I, that is often like i'll become aware of things on twitter become aware of conversations that are happening become aware of like either conversations about things that like are maddening or conversations about things that are interesting. And mm-hmm. I'll also like connect with people and sometimes, you know, they'll, they'll post about their research and that'll be another way to find things. So it really largely just comes from trying to stay on top of and be aware of what's happening in music theory literature. And then also again, often it will come down to just like having a question and trying to find out like, what is the the whole thing about this? Like the video I did, like it was a couple of years ago now, but about the sharpness wars, that whole thing was like, I had read about it at one point, but I was pretty sure I'd read about it on Wikipedia. So I didn't trust it. And I couldn't find any other 
sources. And then I was just like reading a completely unrelated book. Uh, it was uh, Ryan North's How to Invent Everything. Great book, by the way. Hmm. Uh, but it just mentioned the term pitch inflation. And suddenly I had a search term and I went and dug and I found like, com- fell like completely down this rabbit hole of just like, what happened? What was this? And suddenly got like a lot of actual scholarly sources that I could cite instead of just like a vague recollection from Wikipedia that I couldn't find the page for anymore, mm-hmm. which wasn't super useful. And that's sort of how I wound up digging up the, the fact that Concert A is defined in the Treaty of Versailles, which is ridiculous, but it is. <laughs> <laughs> and also, it's not defined as what we currently use it as. Like, Britain yeah. started playing, like, weird math games, and so now it's higher than what the Treaty of Versailles says it's supposed... It's God, it's such a great anecdote. And <laughs> yeah. you know, it just comes from having a question and going and digging and seeing what you can find. But... That's probably way too long of an answer for like the first third of a question. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that's, that's a great totally answer. Fine. Yeah, that's really great to see because you know it's showing the diligence that you're putting into these yeah. videos, and that your work has this kind of serious backbone behind behind it, right? Yeah, yeah. No, there's there's a lot of research that goes into this, and sort of in terms of to transition from there into like more of the process stuff. Again, like this is sort of just recently changed that I've made the adjustment that I'm now on a two-week publishing schedule. Uh, I sort of have backed my publishing schedule down over the like over the last like year and a half or so. I started I was doing weekly for years, and then I switched to like three videos a month, and then I switched to like two on one off. And the idea for those was to give myself at least an occasional research week because I was sort of running out of time to do research and that was not great because that meant I had to make videos I didn't have to research and I was running out of things that I didn't have to research Mm -hmm. and so I sort of literally like a couple weeks ago as of this recording was just like I'm gonna switch to an every other week just fully two weeks and that way I have a full week to research and think about script writing and maybe write the script during that week maybe not and that's the week I'm in right now is sort of trying to look at the song that I'm going to be making a video about next week and analyzing that a bit. Mm-hmm. But that gives me time to do the research and also to think about how I want to frame the ideas a bit more instead of just like going with my first like stream of conscious thought, yep. which I was definitely doing a little bit by the end. Uh, <laughs> but that way I have more time. And then usually ideally around like Friday or Saturday, I'm going to record the video, uh, record the audio for that. And I, Honestly, like this is maybe not something I should be admitting in front of like a professional musician audience, <laughs> but I just do my audio recording in Premiere. Like I don't even have like a real DAW. <laughs> I just record it straight into that. I think my computer has GarageBand if I really uh-huh. wanted to use GarageBand, but like Premiere has enough audio editing features mm-hmm. and like I don't need anything super fancy and so it just works. Yeah. yeah. And then it's right there when I transition and when I do the the video editing as well. Sure. Uh, so once I do that, and like put in all the like the musical examples, which I when I'm playing those myself, I make those in Reason. I have Reason Eight. Mm-hmm. When I'm doing like stems or whatever, I'll usually if I'm playing around with those, I'll use Melodyne, uh, which you know standard industry tool stuff. Like, but once I have that, I will go through and listen to the audio and write down uh, animation directions effectively, like a list of things point by point what I want to draw. 
And that's wow. honestly the most annoying part of the, like, the production <laughs> process. So what I'll do is I'll set like a 20 minute timer and just do as much as I can. And then take go take a break and come back later in the day and do another 20 minutes and do that. Mm-hmm. And usually I can get about three to four minutes of audio directed per 20 minute run. So on a video that's like 15 minutes, that's probably like three or four or four or five of those sessions. And then, you know, from there I'll go and film, uh, which is just literally like I sit down at my dining room table. I'm sitting underneath my camera. So I have a Mm -hmm. tripod that goes Mm -hmm. over my head and it's sort of on chairs that have stacks of books and board games just to get the height. I love (laughs) it. And then it's just pointing straight. It's, I mean, the thing about doing YouTube is you don't have a production budget, so you just figure out whatever works. Yeah. Again, we were talking before we started recording right now, my, like my mic is just on a stack of textbooks. (laughs) I love that. Yeah. Yeah. It's just the wizard behind the screen. Don't pay attention to all that other stuff. It It looks nice. It all works. Yeah. It all works. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then from there, I'll like sit down and I I just have my computer in front of me with the list and I will just go down the list and draw things. And then one one thing I've been asked a couple of times, like, Oh, do you plan out where everything goes on the page? And no, I don't. Uh, I just have my list and in the list, I will include, occasionally just a thing that's like new page question mark so that i know mm-hmm. those are points where i can change pages without it just like being in the middle of a sentence or something or sure. being in the middle of a thought and so that lets me organize and it looks like i planned it a little bit but i i, I did it totally does no it <laughs> yeah, totally but, does but yeah in no, fact it's... <laughs> i it didn't occur to me until you said it just now that you record the audio and then you record the video because when you watch them it looks like you're saying the thing and drawing it as you talk about it and i was yeah I'm still like super impressed, but in the it's moment so cool. it was like, how do they do that? Yeah. yeah. So yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've had a lot of people ask about sort of the, the technique of that. And one thing that I like, cause I had seen a couple other people do sort of similar things and my assumption, and I think a lot of people's assumption is that you just slow down the audio and record in time with that slowed down audio or just draw in time with that audio. Right. But it turns out that that isn't very effective. Uh, what winds up happening is that you have to rush some things, you have to drag other things, and everything just winds up looking sloppy. So instead, literally every time I finish a drawing, that is a separate cut that I'm doing. Like, I've sped it up to its own custom amount. Uh, again, in Premiere, that's sort of the the last step, is uh, once I have it filmed, I'll bring it into Premiere, and I'm, I line it up, like, it's every, like, two to three seconds, or, like, when I'm notating, it's, like, every note. So, well, actually, not every note. What I found is that for 16th notes, if you have a run of four 16th notes, uh, it actually looks wrong if I have each note drawn on the beat. So instead, I'll mm. draw the first and last one on the beat. And because the last one has takes so much longer to draw than all the others, because you have to draw all yeah. of the the beams and the stems and God, I'm blanking on words. But you know, mm-hmm. you, you know how weird four 16th notes looks. Everyone. Yeah. <laughs> um, so... It, it's just like because there's so much more drawing that goes into that fourth one you sort of have to fake it a little bit and bump the other and just do that so that that's highly technical detail i probably didn't need to include but <laughs> but you know go, going through these things i i will like i said just chop it up and like drag it with um the rate stretch tool in premiere mm-hmm. I used to, because I didn't know about the rate stretch, I used to do that manually by like looking at where the clip started, looking at where I wanted my hand to start pulling away, and then mm. 
just going into the speed and duration thing and setting the duration to be exactly that many frames. And I was doing that again every like two to three seconds of video wow. for... But but then, like, a friend of mine told me about rate stretch, and it's, <laughs> it's so much easier. But, yeah. That's awesome. I don't think you're getting too technical, by the way. No, it's yeah. really interesting. When you do the musical examples, I mean, yeah. they really are right in time. I hadn't yeah. thought about that until right now, but now that you said yeah. it, I'm like, yeah, they're right in time with the music. So, yeah, very cool. Yeah, it's something that, like, as music theory teachers, and I know not all of our listeners are music theory, theory teachers. I know that's fine. But yeah. for those of us that are, you know, in the year 2021, to be able to do some of these things is really a game changer for all of us. To be able to get a video out there that is really high quality, that's really informative, that's really clear, and has everything, you know, and to draw from your experience is just really valuable yeah. to all of us and i hope it's valuable to everyone yeah. listening out there that i hope so yeah you know i've tried i've certainly gone through <laughs> like an evolution of a year and a half of like videos i've made you know and my videos are not even close to like <laughs> some stuff you've done you know so i'm like trying to evolve and i'm like trying to keep pushing the needle every time i make a video so just hearing this i think is yeah. super super helpful cool. and you're learning as you're going right we're kind of figuring yeah. out the technology and i think the beauty of your videos is that it looks effortless. Like it looks yeah. so yeah. easy, <laughs> but you know, you try to do that and it's like, wow, this is really challenging. And here you talk about it. The process yeah. uh, shows how much work it takes to make something look simple. Right. Yeah. And there's definitely like, still like, I'm still learning how to do this stuff too. I'm still figuring out like at this point, a lot of the technological stuff I've basically got figured out. I don't know that I could optimize that much more than I already have, but like trying to figure out like where I want what I want to do with my like with a like a pause with if my hands not in the shot for like particularly long how I want to handle that what I want to do with like a, if a drawing goes wrong or how I want to th there's a lot of things that I'm still sort of thinking about and figuring out and like iterating as I go and so I mean that process never ends you know yeah can you talk a little bit about your style because I've been watching a lot of videos of yours uh, over the past couple weeks. Oh, and I've seen many over the past <laughs> years. And you have an incredibly consistent style. Yeah. I, I wasn't... Was there someone with like a, a different handed person at some at some yes. point? Okay. Yes, no one knows sure. about that. That's such <laughs> deep I wasn't sure if like your yeah. camera, you had a camera flipping thing at one point, but I'm no. like, I think 12 tone used to be right handed or something <laughs> like that. Um, no, and, we, yeah. yeah. Oh, go on. I didn't mean to. And I guess the second question was like, why do you think your videos have been so successful? Obviously, they're unique. You know, you see the thumbnail or you watch the video. That's you're the only one that's doing like yeah. that, like that. But you know, the way you have the text and the kind of cartoon that's almost like um, uh, stream of consciousness, right? You yeah. kind of have these cartoons that look like you're just kind of doodling, right? Um, yeah. What do you? What kind of responses have you had from your viewers on like what they really like about the way you deliver that music theory content? Yeah. So first of all, since you mentioned it, I just want to shout out our original animator. Uh, his name is Emmanuel. Uh, he was in the same at, at the same in the same program I was. Got his degree at the same time, and he like for the first six years, like six months or so, I, I had recruited him because he just has much better handwriting than I do, and so it felt like that would be better for legibility. And then, and it was it was great. Like I, he was working really well, and then like 
about six months in, he decided to move out of LA and you know, that, that totally fair. Like the, the job wasn't paying him at that point. Like, I, I can't be mad at him for failing. Uh, but he, you know, and, and at that point it was either like, okay, I have to either stop making 12 tone, which I don't want to do or start doing this myself or find someone else to do it. But like that seemed way more daunting than the other two mm. options. So I was just like, I'm just going to do it myself. And I will eventually learn how to draw, hopefully. And I'm still waiting for that moment. But, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, as as for the style, like I think, I, I I often get people like being like, oh, it's so unique, and it, which is interesting to me because to me it's completely ripped off of Minute Physics and Vihart. <laughs> like, <laughs> like the way I often describe my work when people ask is like, oh, I just I saw like Minute Physics and Vihart, and I was like, oh, what if I did that but worse? And so. <laughs> the, that, that sort of and, and obviously like to give myself a bit more credit like all three of our channels look very different and there's very different approaches to the hand-drawn animation style and there's but i think the thing that draws people to them is the same stuff that drew me to like metaphysics and Vihart in the first place is that there's i've, I've in the past almost described it as like a garage rock aesthetic like if you listen to a band like the white stripes part of the point of that is that it doesn't sound like professionals. It sounds like extremely talented amateurs. Yeah. And obviously there's a lot of work that goes into making it sound like that. I'm not saying that they're like, they're actually <laughs> amateurs, but that's sort of the vibe. And so it makes it feel more relatable. And so the fact that like the tempo drifts or the fact that like the chords, like the finger, his finger slid a little bit on, on the guitar and played a note he didn't mean to play. Like that's not a problem. It becomes a feature. It becomes something that makes it more connectable. You can sort of relate to it. And I think similarly with my work, I've built this aesthetic that is inherently very forgiving, which is, again, yeah, Sometimes great you cross yeah. things out, right? Yeah, I'll like draw something or, you know, sometimes I'll just like do a drawing and be like, that didn't work, but I'm like too deep into a page to start over. So we're just going to roll with it. Uh, and there's, there's just, there's a lot of, a lot of leeway in that and a lot of humanity to it, I think, mm -hmm. that makes it feel... Because I think, by and large, across the board, anyone working in, like, educational YouTube is going for one of two things. A anyone working successfully in educational YouTube, I should say. Uh, they're either going for, like, super polished, like, documentary-style, like, aesthetic, where it just looks like a hundred people each spent, like, a thousand hours making this video. Or they're going for the vibe of just having of being your friend of sort of sitting in the room with you and walking you through an idea. And, you know, there, there are negative connotations to that. If we want to get into the dangers of parasocial relationships. And that's the thing that at least those of us who are responsible about it tend to be careful about, mm. but there, there's inherently, I think to this, a, an appeal to feeling like it's an actual human being just sitting down and talking with you casually as opposed to, and like no offense to present company, but as opposed to having like a college professor lecturing you. No yep. offense and at all. Very, <laughs> yeah. in terms of, all, all in the YouTube marketplace, those sorts of lectures don't tend to do as well if there's not like a person to connect to. Yep. And that I think is a, a large part of what the drawings do because like, you know, if you look at someone like Adam Neely, like he has his face in his video and that makes it very easy to connect with him. And I love Adam, great dude. Um, both on like and on his work and like privately huge fan of that guy but like in my work i didn't want to show my face right and so 
I had to figure out other ways to make it feel like it was just like a friend explaining a thing to you. And that, that doodling style is a way to sort of feel like you're, you know, to me, it immediately evokes like sitting in the back of a class you're not paying that much attention to and just messing around. Right. And if you go back to like early Viheart videos, for instance, they're literally called like doodling in math class. And the whole theme <laughs> is like, she's talking about like, it, like ignoring the teacher and drawing these things. And they happen to wind up being the mathematical structure that the teacher was talking about. And it's, it's a great bit. And that I think really emphasizes how this sort of thing works. And it makes it feel like you're just, you know, sitting around goofing off and like, and I did that in some classes where I just sit in the back and doodle like with a manual, actually, like we would sit in the back and draw, like just mess around. And that sort of thing I think is very relatable to anyone who has ever not paid attention in class. And I think most people have at some point in their life not paid attention in class. And so that, that I think gives it, and again, it sort of removes some of the, for lack of a better word, stuffiness of it too. It makes it feel like it, it's sort of like an unspoken, like, look, I get it. Like this may not seem like the most exciting thing, but trust me, I think it's really cool and you should listen to me mm-hmm. as yep. opposed to like trying to be like, really like, Oh, you should care about this thing. It just has this subtlety to it that ha- shows rather than tells that like, yes, I acknowledge that maybe you might not think you care, but you should care. Mm-hmm. So have you ever, there's a lot of, in the drawings, there's a lot of reoccurring themes, Ben. Did we just yep. do that thing we always do where we talk over each other? Uh, there's a lot of reoccurring themes in the drawings, like yeah. uh, home often means tonic, uh, yep. the elephant shows up, the mouse, um, you know, other things like that. Have you ever thought of creating like a legend of those, or do you have kind of your own legend maybe of those uh, kind of pictures that show up over and over? A little bit, but, and I've had like, like audience members talk about like either requested or some people have talked about just putting one together themselves. But like, I kind of like the freedom that not being really explicit about it gives me Mm -hmm. because I can use the same thing for multiple different ideas Mm -hmm. and I can use, I can sort of change things over time. And like, I do like one thing that I have on my computer or my Google drive, let's be real. Uh, but one thing I have is just a list of like the drawings that I do for specific numbers, because like you'll get into a position where it's like, okay, how do I draw something to represent the concept of 16? And Mm. that's not a problem I have to solve that often, but when it comes up, like it's hard. And so like I'll, for that one, I do like a, a mine cart with uh coal to reference the 16 tons song. Um, oh, but nice. I think I just got that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but yeah, oh, that I mean, that also brings back to another thing is that like one thing that I rely on is that I do so many drawings like per minute or per video that it really doesn't matter if people don't get any particular one. Mm-hmm. And so I can just sort of do like fun references for me sometimes and just do <laughs> things that I don't expect anyone to understand or things that like someone might get but doesn't really get and or doesn't need to get and like for instance for uh the number six to go back to numbers i draw a penny farthing bicycle and i ran a twitter poll at one point to ask if anyone got that and like i think 90 percent of my audience was like no i have no idea what this is (laughs) 
But like the, the 10% who did realize that it was a reference to the prisoner were like, oh, that's super cool. Like, <laughs> well, we do that in the classrooms all the time. I'm always yeah. saying these offhanded comments that only like the one student in the back gets. Yeah. <laughs> and everyone else like totally goes over their head. I love that, that you're doing the same thing yeah. with your YouTube audience. Now, thinking about, you know, teaching and uh, so kind of, I want to kind of talk about kind of more kind of philosophical things and how yeah. you see yourself and, you know, other YouTubers like yourself and Amelian and folks like, do you think of yourself as a music theory teacher and is your channel um, and the other online platforms that you yeah. uh, participate with, like kind of you see that as your classroom? I think teacher is a loaded word. I, I feel like that has too many associations that don't really match what I'm doing. I, I will describe myself as a music theory educator, but I don't, I don't know that teacher is accurate. Uh, and it's partly like if one thing, like you're talking about sort of like YouTube and my, my Twitter account or whatever as a classroom, or especially YouTube. Um, one of the big parts of a classroom is that there's interaction, right? Like you, you interact with your students, your students interact with you. There, there's a whole conversation that goes there and to extend the metaphor, I just have too many students for that to be plausible. <laughs> and it's just like if 20,000 people watch a video, I can't grade 20,000 people's homework. And usually Hopefully more not. than 20,000 people watch, you know. <laughs> but just the, the scale that I'm working at has its benefits and its downsides. And I don't... This is the thing that gets talked about a lot in these sorts of in, in like educational or YouTube educational circles is like, are we a replacement for a college classroom? And I come down pretty definitively on the side of like, no, I, I would not recommend that someone who was considering getting a degree in music theory instead watch 312 tone view uh, videos. That is, is not going to be as useful. It's not going to do the same thing. It, might be more effective at some parts of it, but it's going to be less effective at others, again, because of that interaction, because you lack sort of repetition, because there's there's all sorts of ways in which the YouTube, YouTube as a platform doesn't really work as as a substitute for a, a more traditional education. But on the other hand, they're, they're, I think what we're really good at is... Um, enthusiasm is taking taking ideas and being like here's why you should care here's why i care and here's here's even just see here's that i care mm. i think that's a thing that like i remember when i like started taking um theory in college and we were doing four-part writing and at like at no point did i get any sense of why i should care about four-part writing <laughs> like yep. i was like i was talking to like a friend of mine and he was just like well i don't know maybe if you like want to write a string part for your metal song at some point like this might be useful it's just it's like yeah that's that's about as good a use as i can think of for like this thing that we're dedicating eight quarters to when your metal band is backed up by the san francisco orchestra yeah. like metallica yeah, no. you're, you're it did it you know? <laughs> well i think that's a really interesting point because if you're teaching in a classroom, you have a captive audience, yeah. right? They're not, they're not going to go anywhere for the next 50 minutes. Yeah. But as someone who's creating videos on YouTube, yeah, we have the exact opposite, whatever yeah. that is. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's just a thing I've like, 
I, I think that's a great point. Like we have, you know, you have people who have like chosen to be there at some level. Maybe they haven't chosen, they don't necessarily want to take theory, but they've chosen to get a music degree or what, or whatever. They have right. like external motivation to care because they have to get a good grade. Like mm. they have to keep their GPA up for if they care about that or if they need to care about that. But I have none of that. Instead, what I have is a sidebar of videos that YouTube thinks you might be more interested in than the one you're currently watching. <laughs> <laughs> so, and you have to make I, yeah. an impression. I mean, that's what they're called, yeah. right? Impressions. And so yeah, you want to make a I'm, good one. Like literally fighting for your attention every minute. And, you know, th that's not to say that, you know, in a classroom, every student is always paying attention. But they're very limited in the set of things they can go do otherwise compared to, you know, my audience who can go do literally anything. They could close the window, they could go for a walk, I wouldn't know. Yeah. Well, it's true that the feedback matters too. So in my yeah. classroom, I'm yeah. probably, I have relatively small class sizes, I'm lucky that way. And I'm probably gonna notice if student isn't really paying attention and I might call on them or, yeah. you know, say, isn't that right, so-and-so, you know, as I'm going on to try and pull them back in and get them back yeah. involved, so yeah. Yeah. For yeah. Sure. Yeah. And so you can, you see where on YouTube, where, you know, you have your peak views, right. And things where it tail off. Do you ever look at those analytics and, and mm. make changes because of that? Um, so over the last couple of years, I've made an active effort to not. And that's largely because I was finding that like YouTube gives you so many numbers and it's so easy to convince yourself that those numbers have meaning mm -hmm. that like I found myself really like spiraling into like depressive episodes when videos didn't perform or mm. when something went wrong. And even when they were doing well, I was just like staring, spending like hours sitting in analytics, looking at like what's happening, what's going on. And it's just like, was not good for my mental health. And so mm. I made an active effort. I actually like installed a browser extension called Stylebot that I use to hide all view counts and all mm. analytic data across the platform. And I can turn it off and I can look at the numbers if I want to, yeah. but I can't suddenly like load a page and get like hit with like, oh, this video has this many views. Mm. And like even like other people's videos, I was finding like once I was not looking at mine, I was looking at like my friends and if their video was getting like 150,000 views, there's a part of my, the voice in the back of my head that's like, that's way better than you usually do. Like what's wrong with your, th and it's just like trying to step back and refocus on making what I wanted to make and what felt meaningful and important to me was going to be much more useful. Cause like, more than anything, being a professional YouTuber is a game of longevity. It's so much more than anything else. So much more than like knowing how to make a thumbnail, knowing how to like whatever. It's about continuing to make stuff long term. Mm -hmm. And so as someone, if, if I want to continue doing this indefinitely, which I don't know if I do, I'm like, that's still a question. But like for now, that's my current plan. But like, if that's something I want, then I have to set it up so that I still feel good about it a year from now, 10 years from now. What, well, 10 years. I, that would be a long time to make YouTube videos. But, yeah. but, and you brought up so many good points there, yeah. But yeah, no, it's just 
like I do the one thing I do is I'll do like a quarterly review where I'll go look at like okay for the last three months how did my videos do <laughs> and that way I'm aware if something is going like super wrong and the other thing I'll do sometimes is I'll like sort my videos by like views and just look at what my top 30 most viewed videos ever are hmm. and that can give me some context of what people are responding to and I can notice if like a new video has gotten there but any particular new video probably won't at this point because that's less than 10% of all my videos and so I'm not like bummed out if I like look like a week after a video's gone up and be like, oh, it's not in my top thirty ever, because I, I don't expect it to be. And so that that gives me some context. And again, the quarterly reviews give me some more information as well about the overall direction of the channel. But I try really hard to not dig too deep into the numbers because it just stresses me out. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. That would be like if we were receiving course evaluations after every lecture. Yep. And then also able to, to during, see everyone during every else's, lecture. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> also able to see everyone else's course evaluations yeah. during every lecture. That would be yeah. terrible. Yeah. I know. It's bad I can't enough tell you the getting number. them twice a yeah. year. Yeah. <laughs> so many times I've gone back into my office and been like, that lesson was a piece of crap like what just happened <laughs> yeah. you know and i'll go back and i'll completely redo the whole thing like just in the moment and it's just it, it must be like times 10 or times 100 yeah. you know when you have a published version of this on the internet then you know even when you have a dedicated following it's like well that's great but that at the same time you have people that you know are going to be watching you know and that <laughs> mm-hmm. to me would just be the scariest yeah. thing ever so like kudos to you for just having that that vulnerability <laughs> That, that resilience to <laughs> fight yeah, the good sure, fight yeah. and, and keep putting really good content out there. We all thank you for it. I yeah, think thank you. Uh, us theorists that are in yeah. the academy. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, happy to team up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who do you find wor- um, watches your videos? I know you have you have more than more yeah. video- more viewers than you could possibly know. But do you find there are they music students? Are they hobbyists? Yeah. Professionals? I'm sure you have some trolls in there too. But um, <laughs> who do you find that kind of at least, I guess, watches and engages, right? Because most people just watch and don't comment yeah. or don't do anything. Uh, but of those who you've engaged with, uh, who are these viewers? Yeah, so if I'm looking at... And these days I don't read my comment section for similar reasons to the analytics. What I'll do is I'll get yeah. uh, feedback on Twitter and through my community Discord, uh, which... I've found generally that if people have to go off site to send you a message, their message is probably going to be more worth reading sure. and more interesting and like less likely to just be like pointlessly negative or even just like one of the things that's like often hard to explain about like having like this large of an audience and this like, and again, like I don't even have that large of an audience by YouTube standards, but like even having like tens of thousands of views like you get so many people who leave like comments that are just like good video and it's just <laughs> over time you get so numb to the to the positivity of it and it just winds up getting in the way of trying to find someone who's saying like something that actually adds anything <laughs> and so like I, i'm not saying don't leave those comments like, <laughs> again i'm not reading my comment sections anyway so leave whatever you want but it, it's one of those things where it's it's hard to convey just how numb you get to that sort of positive feedback hmm. without sounding kind of like a jerk. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but, your fans. Oh, <laughs> the masses. Yes, but, their platitudes. 
but it is one of those like again like when i look at like my twitter platform people who engage on there and people who engage in my discord it's actually kind of different like on twitter like i'm connected to a lot of like music academics a lot of people who like teach music theory or are in grad school for music theory and and that that's really great and those are people whose opinions i'm often like really nervous about because you know like if i put out a video and someone I've never heard of who I have no idea what their qualifications are is just like, this is a bad analysis. And I'm like, well, I, I don't know if you know how to do that, but if I have like music theory professors being like, you, you screwed this one up, then it's just like, okay, well, I, I probably punted that. <laughs> but on, on my like discord, I do, I find a lot of hobbyists, a lot of people who make music, but either did, did a degree and decided to go like, perform do do the performing thing or a lot of people who either bounced off the academy because it didn't work for them mm. or never tried in the first place uh, but people who are like really interested in these sorts of approaches to music without necessarily wanting to go through the whole path of becoming an academic music theorist mm-hmm. and because you know one of the things like you see a lot of like this in tuning theory there's there's a lot of like tuning theory hobbyists out there who just love playing with synths and that's great and it means you have this this whole community that's like not entirely disconnected from the academy obviously but like a lot of them aren't particularly tied to traditional academic roots and so when i do videos about tuning theory i get all these people coming out who like have a lot of thoughts about this and have never really had like a big public platform to share them on or anyone to like talk to and so that I mean, that huge, I really appreciate that, and it's been really cool to sort of connect with people who like thinking about music in the same ways that I do, and maybe that made them not quite as good a fit for going a traditional academic route. Sure. So yeah, yep. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Well, I think what you're doing is is great, and this has been such a fun conversation to have to get a little bit behind the scenes um, and see more than your hand and arm has been great <laughs> as well. Um, so, but before we, before we uh, kind of sign off, we like to do yeah. just a short little rapid fire kind of sure. series. And so this is where you can throw out your, uh, your Twitter clickbait, sound bites, <laughs> things like that. And so um, Jen, Ben, do you have an idea? I have, I have one. I have one. Okay, Jen. And we don't talk about yeah. these, so we don't know each <laughs> yeah. other. So hopefully, we won't steal. I have a new other, one. So, Jen, do you want to go first? I do too. Uh, well, I was <laughs> going to ask, what are your top three channels that you're following right now on YouTube? Oh, uh, music specifically, or anything you want. Yeah. Uh, Laura Crone is phenomenal. She does videos mostly about movies, uh, but from a really sort of interesting philosophical perspective. Uh, highly recommend her work. Um, Neurotransmissions is a channel about um, neuroscience. They're great. Uh, they're like good friends of mine as well. I've known them for years. Um, and one that I've been sort of watching recently that is a fairly recent channel, but is, is actually about music to get one of those in there is Sounds Good. Uh, mm. She does things about mostly like electronic and experimental music. Mm. And it's it's been really interesting to learn a bit more about that because that's not an area that I'm super tied into. So mm-hmm. that's great. That's yeah. great. All right, mine is I'm gonna give it to you in a song. All right. <laughs> so here we go. So music theory, huh? 
What is it good for? <laughs> um, it's it's a complicated question. I think that <laughs> um, soundbite here. Thinking soundbite. I don't view that as being one specific use, but the thing that appeals to me about it is on God. It's tough to soundbite. I, I, <laughs> That's okay. You can you can, yeah, no, you can I, philosophize. Yeah. Go on a tangent. Sermon yeah, no, I, I think the main thing that music theory does for me is it helps me more deeply understand musical nuances in the works that I appreciate and enjoy. Like it, it helps me put a deeper understanding on what specifically is working for me hmm. than just pointing at a thing and be like, oh, this is that. And I think that, you know, the main thing is like, I often see people like arguing that like the main point of music theory is to help you write better songs. And I really don't like that idea. I think that that's, it it does, it does help you write better songs, Mm -hmm. but I I don't like the idea that that's the primary purpose. And I I tend to view it. Okay. So let me, let me, let me give you a soundbite here. Cause I just remember, um, I will have often said uh, that I've considered I believe the thoughtful, thorough analysis of art is itself art. And so first and foremost, to me, music theory is an art form. There, there's the soundbite. That's a soundbite. There you go. I love that. Well, and I think you're, you're right on with, you know, you don't have to know music theory to be a songwriter. I was watching, um, 321 McCartney on Hulu with Paul McCartney and Rick Rubin talking. And one of the episodes he's playing guitar and he's talking about this song, Michelle, and he plays the secondary dominant. He's like, I don't even know what this chord is. I don't know, but it sounds good. And it's and it, it works great. And like, yeah. he doesn't know the name of that. He doesn't know how it functions, but he knows what sounds good and yeah. how it works. And he doesn't and, need yeah. to. Right. He does it internally, right? He doesn't yeah. have yeah. to know the name. Yeah, and that's, yeah, getting yeah. into sort of the sort of implicit versus explicit knowledge. Mm-hmm. He definitely knows what that chord is. He just doesn't know what to call it. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. Mine has to do with kind of something you talked about earlier which is kind of including different groups you know that you when you came up in your undergrad you know there were a lot of groups that you were interested in but your professors didn't even mention yeah. so what is the number one artist or group that that we need to be mentioning in, in our classes every week oh god um <laughs> uh, that's a tough one I, I Honestly, it's one of those things where I think the artist that comes to mind that I think should be discussed a lot more in music, like academia in general, is Kendrick Lamar. Uh Uh, I'm not sure that I would necessarily try and just shoehorn a discussion of Kendrick Lamar into a traditional theory (laughs) curriculum and call it good. Right, right. And so if I was doing, like, trying to fit something that fit with that mold already a bit better, I might say someone like Nirvana. But I, I do think specifically hip hop needs a lot more academic respect and academic exploration. Mm-hmm. And Definitely. I think Kendrick is a perfect place to do a lot of that. Well, that comes up in your video about like why Beethoven sucks yeah. or something yeah. like that. Is that's the it's yeah, the that gist one. of the title? But the idea <laughs> Beethoven is Beethoven sucks at music. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. There it is. 
<laughs> the idea is that, you know, of course yeah. we have the canon and are those really the people? Because your point in that video yeah. is not that people should, no one should like Beethoven, but more no. that, like, why is it people who barely yeah. know anything written by Beethoven would list him among yeah. the best composers to ever yes. live, right? And it's because yeah, of like our the, cultural, you know. Yeah. yeah. And of course, Kendrick yeah. Lamar, there's the whole outrage when he wins the Pulitzer. When the Pulitzer, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, no, I think. So the, the general thesis of that video is that I should be allowed to not like Beethoven. Mm -hmm. It's not that I don't like Beethoven either. I, I, like, I don't have strong opinions about Beethoven one way or the other. But like, there's, yeah, like you said, this this cultural expectation mm -hmm. that even if I've never listened to a, like, a Beethoven piece, I should be like, oh yeah, Beethoven is one of the greatest composers of all time, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> and, you know. Right. And I think yeah, one of the themes it. of our podcast, you know, this will end up being early in season yeah. two, but the, you know, if we had a theme for season one, it would be, we're all revising our curriculum to be much yeah. broader and much more inclusive. And, um, I think actually I can think of lots of ways that I can fit hip hop artists and Kendrick Lamar into my class the way it exists right yeah. now, because we, we don't, touch figured bass until they're you know almost at the end of a four semester sequence we yeah. we don't do part writing until they're in theory two and half of theory two is pop music now so you know we're yeah we're trying and it, to be fair like i i haven't taken a theory class in over in almost a decade now so i i don't really know what those look like these days but you know if, i think if a lot in, of people yeah. are trying um yeah i, I definitely think so reimagine it i think for the in a lot of ways, we are at now. sort of a flashpoint for the field where there's mm -hmm. sort of really been a reckoning around the way we talk about the canon and the way we talk about non-canonic music. Yeah. And I think that's Absolutely. great. And yeah. I hope that continues. Yeah, same. Yeah. Absolutely. And I love to pick up an artist here or there that, that I may not know and start with the artists themselves. I think that's a good way to do yeah. it mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So as we're wrapping up, uh, tell us a little bit about what you have going on um, into the future. Of course, I guess you two for another 10 years at least. Yeah, and, at, least. at least. And, <laughs> um, and you know, if, if uh, people are discovering you for the first time, where can they learn uh, more about you? Where can they find you uh, on the internet? Yeah, so mostly, like my, my biggest platform is by a wide margin YouTube. Um, I'm also fairly active on Twitter, uh, twitter.com slash 12 tone videos. And I also have uh, my own podcast as well called Ghost Notes, uh, it's which really is... really good. I've been listening to yeah. that too. It's great. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> yeah. It is technically and like produced by a uh, platform called Nebula. So they get episodes a month early, but then they all go live everywhere that podcasts are normally available after a month. So, you know, they are totally freely available. <laughs> I just have to plug nebula so <laughs> so that's our show thank you so much for listening to note doctors the music theory and pedagogy podcast we'll be back with more interviews with professors and teachers who will be dropping all sorts of theory knowledge for your education edification and enjoyment so until then bye-bye